0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Xfinity. Everything is changing so fast. But now, with the Xfinity 10G network, you can power a house full of devices at once with ultra-low lag. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed.
1: From WHYY in Philadelphia, I'm Terry Gross with Fresh Air Weekend. Today we talk about HBO's Succession and its finale, with the series creator and showrunner Jesse Armstrong, who wrote the finale. In the past, he's been reluctant to reveal much about creating the characters and plot lines, but now that the series is over, he was ready to talk. Also with us will be executive producer Frank Rich, who was instrumental in getting the series made. Later, we'll hear from actor Elliot Page. He's best known for his roles in Juno, Inception, and X-Men. In 2020, he came out as a trans man, and soon after, his character on the Netflix series The Umbrella Academy also transitioned. Page's new memoir is called Page Boy. And Maureen Corrigan will recommend two new suspense novels that overturn the age-old Woman in Trouble plot. That's coming up on Fresh Air Weekend.
2: This message comes from NPR sponsor Carvana. Shop for your next car the convenient way, 100% online with Carvana. Getting pre-qualified takes less than two minutes. Then see your real terms as you shop. Visit Carvana to finance your dream car the convenient way.
0: At this year's Oscars, Oppenheimer took home the award for Best Picture, Emma Stone and Robert Downey Jr. also picked up wins, and Ryan Gosling brought the Kennergy. For a recap of all the highlights, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from
2: NPR. Instead of scrolling mindlessly, engage mindfully with the NPR app. With a mix of on-demand news, stories from this station, and your favorite podcast, you can relax without shutting off your brain. Download the NPR app today.
1: This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Terry Gross. If you still have questions about the finale of HBO's Succession, stay tuned. You're about to get some answers from the man who wrote it, Jesse Armstrong. He's the series creator, showrunner, and head writer. Also joining us for the interview is Frank Rich, an executive producer of the series, who was instrumental in getting it made. Succession is about three adult siblings vying to succeed their elderly father as the powerful CEO of the family conglomerate.
3: I have you beat, you morons.
1: Those six words spoken by the patriarch Logan Roy sum up his philosophy of business and of life. I have you beat, and his opinion of his children, you morons. He's a brilliant businessman who, through power plays, manipulation, and backstabbing, has created a media and entertainment empire, including a conservative cable news network. As a father, just about any expression of love toward his children has been transactional. He's been emotionally abusive, made them dependent and weak, and condemns them for being that way. Like the father, the siblings operate free of ethical and moral concerns. For example, they seem to have succeeded in helping elect a white nationalist as president because they think he'll kill a business deal that would ruin their plans. The series is an unusual mix of drama and satire, tragedy and comedy. This interview will have spoilers, so if you're waiting to catch up on the series finale, why don't you listen later on our podcast or website? Series creator and showrunner Jesse Armstrong and executive producer Frank Rich were previously linked through the HBO satirical series about politics, Veep. Rich was an executive producer. Armstrong wrote an episode. Armstrong had previously collaborated on British comedies with the creator of Veep, Armando Iannucci. Before getting into television, Frank Rich was the New York Times chief theater critic and a columnist who wrote about the intersection of politics and pop culture. Jesse Armstrong, Frank Rich, welcome to Fresh Air. I'm so excited to talk with you. I love this series so much. I I think you probably did the right thing in ending it, but I'm so sorry it's over.
4: Thank you, Terry. It's lovely to speak to you. Great to
3: talk to you as always.
1: I just want to say, it's so clever. The whole series is based on which of the siblings is going to succeed their father. And in the last episode, it's like none of them. (laughs) So Jesse, why couldn't any of the siblings take over?
4: It's a good question. I guess they could do, you know, if you were thinking about this as a business situation rather than a piece of drama, um, they might have slipped through one of them for a little while for for probably an unsatisfactory interregnum as they um, tank the share price. Um it could have happened. They have some qualities. I don't think that they are without abilities, but they lack one thing. It's hard to work as hard as you need to work to run something like this. I think when you come from that kind of privileged background, I just think it's hard to believe that you need to stay as late, read as much and do as much work as probably necessary.
1: Let's talk about the finale. Um, so after arguing Who should succeed their father as CEO and who should they offer the board as, you know, the king? Because Kendall says there can only be like one king here and it should be me. And he finally convinces his siblings it should be him. So the board is voting and Shiv holds out. She's like the decisive vote. She's holding out. The three siblings go into another room, a, a glass office. Shiv explains why she can't vote for Kendall. And this refers to something that happens in the season finale of the first season when Kendall, after a party, is driving one of the caterers to score some drugs because the caterer knows, has connections. Um, Kendall's at the wheel. He's not used to a stick shift. He's not used to driving because he has a chauffeur. And he drives off the road into the river, gets himself out of the car, but the caterer drowns. and. His father covers it up so no one ever knows. So here's Shiv explaining why she can't vote for Kendall to be CEO.
5: You can't be CEO. You can't because you killed someone. But which? What? Wait, what which? Mean? What?
2: Which? What, like, like you've killed so many people you forgot which one? That's, that, that's not an issue. That didn't happen. Wait, uh, it didn't? It's, as it, in uh, what? It's just, oh, just, oh. it's just a thing I said. It's a thing I said. I made it up. You made it up? I, 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 it was a difficult time for us, and I think I, you know, whatever. Right. Must have something from nothing because I, I just, I wanted for us all to bond at a difficult moment. Wait, it was a move? Oh. No, no, not, there, were, okay. there was a kid. There was that kid. But so there was like, a kid? I had, like, a toke and a beer and not. I, I didn't even get in the car. It's not, Hold on. What the f- I felt bad, and I... I false memory, it like I'm, I'm totally clean I can do this wait did it happen or did it not happen it did not happen uh, uh, it did not uh, happen I wasn't even there it did not happen dude vote for me just please vote for me Shiv vote for me no Yes! No. Shiv, don't do this. No. You can't do this. No. no. Shiv. no. Absolutely yes. no. not, man. No. Absolutely not.
5: No. Why? No. Why? What? Just. I love you. I really. I love you, but I can't f- stomach you. All
1: right, that was Jeremy Strong as Kendall, Karen Culkin as Roman, and Sarah Snook as Shiv. Now, Kendall is thwarted. Every time he tries to outdo his father or create a hostile takeover or create any kind of deal inside Waystar Royco or outside of it. Um, he's always thwarted, it never works out. And every time you think, oh, he's growing a conscience. He's getting smarter. He's not <laughs> you know and like this scene that we just heard where he says, the accident never happened. I made it up. It was a false memory. Nothing happened. That's crazy. That's absolutely crazy. Why not let him grow? And I'd like you both to respond to that.
4: It's not that I don't think people are capable of change or or growth. I would say they happen rarely, slowly, and not necessarily all in one direction in that you're just as likely to devolve as evolve. um, there's a, there's a sort of um, sense of, about um, narrative, especially screenplay, that that's what happens in a script, that people grow, they learn, and that is the shape of a script. But that isn't the story of this show. That doesn't seem to be the truth of these people. And so we had to find story shapes which didn't follow that particular shape.
1: Frank, as Jesse said, it's a typical narrative thing. We watch characters grow and change. Through a narrative, and I think that's very true in a lot of theater, you used to be a theater critic. So what do you think of this idea that one of the main characters, Kendall, is he's just incapable of really changing or of learning?
3: Take American drama, um, Willie Lohman, Long Day's Journey, and Death of a Salesman. You look at The Glass Menagerie, Amanda. These characters are tragic and there's a degree of tragedy to Kendall and they don't change. You know, Willy Loman in Death of a Salesman still believes in, a, you know, a, a shoeshine and a smile and the, and the 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 great American idea that you can sell anything in advance through doing it. I fundamentally believe that, that people don't change that much in real life. Uh, some people do, sure, but a lot of people don't, including a lot of people I just know in real life. People are who they are and a lot of people, particularly people who want power, whether it be economic or political power keep doing the same things. And and certainly it's true in the arena where we set our show. It's not like Murdoch has ever changed or Sumner Redstone ever changed in terms of how they operate as people.
1: Succession is this very hard to describe, at least I find it hard to describe, mix of satire and drama and tragedy. And I confess, the first time... I watched it, the season premiere. I tuned out in the middle. I thought, these are hateful people. And then I heard other people talking about Succession. And I thought, like, gee, it sounds really interesting. So I went back and got immediately hooked. Um, but I had no idea that there were comedic elements. Now, maybe that's on me. But I know other people who felt that way, too. And I'm wondering, did you want to kind of sneakily <laughs> bring in the comedy slowly uh, and not kind of announce itself you know, right away?
4: Yeah, would that I had that much control over my own writing? In a way, the the, the tone of the show is kind of how I write. Um, so I guess one of the things I was curious about was showing the ludicrous, the comic, the incongruous, the gross um, parts of these gilded lives. Um, and so maybe that's where the impulse to make sure that there was comedy in there came from, because that's a good register to, to try and approach some of that stuff.
1: Your Your background was in comedy and
4: satire. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm a comedy writer. I'd still, I guess, maybe really call myself a comedy writer. I'd written, you know, with my long-term writing partner, Sam Bain, nine series of Peep Show, which is a sitcom in the UK. Uh, I'd barely—I'd done one Black Mirror that was also vaguely comic. I think I'd, I'd hardly done anything that wasn't comic uh, wholly comic before this show.
1: Some of the funniest parts of Succession are the insults. I mean, there's web pages with just, like, lists of the best insults from the series. Lots of them have obscenities that we cannot broadcast— but there's one long insult I love that, Jesse, you wrote. It's after Logan dies when Tom shares his hopes of becoming the CEO with Carl, the chief financial officer of Waste Arroco, And Carl explains why that's never going to happen. So um, I want to play that clip. It starts with Tom.
2: Were the opportunity to arise, all I would say is that if there's a ring, my hat's in, respectfully.
3: Well, I would just say, um, if we were to recommend you to the board, mm-hmm. the question they might ask... Can, can, can I frame the question for you, but as a friend, sure. just so, so you'd be, sure. be prepared. The negative case would go, you're a clumsy interloper and no one trusts you. The only guy pulling for you is dead. And now you're just married to the ex-boss's daughter... <laughs> And she doesn't even like you. And you are fair and squarely. Jesus, Carl.
1: (laughs) That's Matthew McFadden as Tom. And that was David Rasche as Carl. Let's take a short break here and then we'll talk some more. We're talking about HBO's Succession, which had its series finale Memorial Day weekend. My guests are Jesse Armstrong, the series creator, showrunner and head writer. And Frank Rich, an executive producer of the show. Later, Maureen Corrigan will review two new suspense novels with a twist. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air Weekend.
2: This message comes from Jackson. Let's face it, retirement planning can be confusing. At Jackson, we're working to make retirement clear for everyone, starting with you. Our easy-to-understand resources and user-friendly digital tools help simplify your entire experience. You can have confidence in your retirement with Clarity from Jackson. Seek the clarity you deserve at Jackson.com. Jackson is short for Jackson Financial Incorporated, Jackson National Life Insurance Company, Lansing, Michigan, and Jackson National Life Insurance Company of New York. Purchase New York. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. Every weekday, NPR's best political reporters come to you on the NPR Politics Podcast to explain the big news coming out of Washington, the campaign trail, and beyond. They don't just tell you what happened, they tell you why it matters. Join the NPR Politics Podcast every afternoon to understand the world through political eyes.
1: Let's get back to my interview about the HBO series Succession. The finale ran on Memorial Day weekend, and we finally found out if any of the siblings were able to succeed their father, Logan Roy, as the CEO of the family media and entertainment empire. My guests are Jesse Armstrong, the series creator, showrunner, and head writer, and Frank Rich, an executive producer of the show. Rich was also an executive producer of the HBO series Veep. Before Rich got into television, he worked at the New York Times as its chief theater critic and a columnist covering the intersection of politics and culture. The siblings have committed a lot of offenses. They they have no moral center. They'll do anything to win, like their father. And I think like their worst offense is calling the election at the Family Conservative Cable News Network in favor of the white nationalist candidate. And they're doing this just because they think the white nationalist candidate is going to stop an unfavorable business deal that would end up with their company getting taken over. That is really quite a major event. But the election isn't decided yet when the series ends because there was a fire in Milwaukee and ballots were burned and these were ballots likely to be Democratic. Um, So why did you want to end the series without the election actually being resolved, and there's going to be lawsuits. You know, it's going to be dragged out, probably.
4: Yeah, I wrestled with this one quite a lot. I n- always knew that I wanted to have an election during the um, show because we've seen these characters, and we're interested in their psychology. Hopefully, I certainly am, and that's one strand of the show. But uh, you know, I don't think we would be interested in them if they, you know, ran a wallpaper factory. It's because of their influence through the media that they fascinating to me. and so I wanted to show that at its you know most important moment and um, but I also felt especially as a British person um that it wasn't appropriate for the show to declare on what on what even in our fictional world we think is going to be the fate of the Republic. Um, so it was important to me that we left it where, where it would be. And we worked with, um, very skilled, um, political operatives to figure out the, the right configuration of story that would both put ATN, their news organization in a, in a powerful position to affect things, but also would leave things poised because, yeah. It, some people found the episode, I know, sort of um, gut-wrenching and traumatic. And I can imagine because it's a very serious time for America. And um, yeah, I didn't feel it was appropriate for us to say which way we think things will go. Um,
3: so that was why we left it poised. One other thing, that, which is what if we had called the election one? What if we had said Mencken won or or Mencken lost? I think if we – if if he lost, it would have been saccharine, and sort of made us look like we're resolving this great crisis that's ongoing uh, in in American democracy. is going to certainly continue at full force through the twenty four election at least, um, and it would have it would have been I don't know it would have been saccharine. And if he won, it would have been melodramatic in in the in another direction, and 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 I think kind of. Uh, glib and uh, almost a form of slow, political sloganeering or ideological uh, – so I, I think it was – it would have rung false if we had called it and I like that we left it where we did.
1: Yeah. I, 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 that makes sense to me. I just want to mention one line when uh, Connor, who's running for president as a libertarian only because he has the money to do it. He has like no support. He's you know a, a totally insignificant character in the election, but he says, it makes an election so much more interesting to be in it. <laughs> He's such a dilettante. I love that line. Did, did you write that, Jesse?
4: Yeah, it seemed true to me. It would be more fun, wouldn't they, the election, if you had a little bit more skin in the game?
1: Yeah, it's absolutely not a reason to run. <laughs> <laughs> Jesse, you worked for a member of parliament before getting into television. What was your job? And what are some of the stories or insights that you got from being in in politics or adjacent to politics, that you were able to um, use as insights for succession.
4: I guess I got um, a sense of proximity to power, which I, I'd grown up a long way away from, and so that intangible sense of what power feels like. This was it was before the uh, nineteen ninety seven election when Tony Blair won, so it, it was proximate power, and 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 I was quite. Far from it, but um, as a very, very junior advisor to a junior would-be minister.
1: So did you have to suck up to anybody? Did you become somebody's pain sponge? (laughs) Um, Did you have to um, do bad things?
4: I think I was an unbelievably unsuccessful. Uh, they'd call them a special advisor now, but to think of me, there was nothing much special about me, and my advice would have been very poor. I was I was an outsider. I was helping write letters occasionally, a speech, and uh, think about some policy or write something. But I was I was far outside the loop, and I was not good at doing what would have been useful to my boss, which would have been burrowing into the networks of of friendship and um, connection that would have allowed him to get an extra margin or an extra piece of information. I wasn't a very good politician or even an aid to a politician, Um, but it was fascinating to see that world.
1: Frank, your father was a lawyer who also worked as a lobbyist. Are there things that you were able... To draw on, this is your stepfather,
3: actually. Exactly. Yeah, um, yeah. My stepfather was was a, a a lawyer with a small firm, would later be called like a K Street lawyer. In fact, it literally was on K Street, and he was a fixer. He did somewhat uh, dubious, I'm um, surely surely dubious uh, favors. Uh, Manipulating things in federal agencies, regulatory agencies, and so on, for corporations. In his case, particularly international airlines. And I grew up uh, around. I grew up in the city of D.C. and I saw the sleeves at, at work. And you know, when he dealt with, he was a he was a tertiary figure at best, but he did deal with um, everyone from Lyndon Johnson when he was vice president, and and. Uh, Justice Douglas in the Supreme Court, and Abe Fortas in the Supreme Court, and Drew Pearson, the the uh, supposedly muckraking uh, political uh, columnist, and so you really, I really saw as a kid, and really as a kid, not being very sophisticated, how the sausage was made, and I feel we've we captured that, uh, we captured some of it in Veep too, but we captured it in a more brutal way in the political story um, in succession. And it never changes. You know, it was true in the 19th century, too. But um, uh, so that had an enormous impact on how I view these things in the lens, I guess, which is somewhat cynical, which I view politics in general.
1: I, I regret to say that, uh, Frank, we have to let you go because you're in a New York studio and our studio time is up. Um, Frank Rich is an executive producer of Succession. What a wonderful series. Thank you for it. And thank you for coming on our show and talking.
3: Great to talk to you as always. Thanks.
1: So, so, Jesse, you can continue to stay with us because you're speaking to us from home. And I'm so grateful to you for doing that. The series begins and ends for Logan Roy in the bathroom. You, you know, he, he goes to the bathroom the first time we see him and pees on the rug. He misses the toilet. And then he dies on his jet in the bathroom. Um, so that seems to be a motif, (laughs) Logan in the bathroom. Um, why?
4: Yeah. And I know, I now remember that in the end of the first season is he get, he gets the news, he gets a bear hug letter from, from his son also in a bathroom and he throws it into the, into the toilet bowl. Um, so yeah, I guess one thing is that comedy often works better in small spaces, and so, uh, if a scene isn't working, um, it's not worth. It's sometimes worth trying putting it in a smaller space and seeing what happens when people have to be in each other's physicality. Um, uh- uh, apart from that, I guess there is something about, you know, maybe it's something childish about seeing kings and queens on the toilet. That's what you're, you know, in, in the UK, it was meant to be a hard thing to imagine the queen, uh, the late queen uh, being on the toilet. And uh, there, I guess there's maybe something childlike about seeing great figures doing what all of us must do.
1: So I, I, I want to ask you about obscenities, particularly when it applies to insults. Their series is so laced with obscenities, and they're very colorful, and the insults are hilarious. They add color, but can can you talk about the advantage of using that many obscenities from a writer's point of view?
4: <laughs> yeah, obscenities, I guess there there's, there's obscenities, and then there's the invective and the insults. Certain world's construction sites and high-pressure environments, newsrooms, certain places have quite a lot of swearing in my experience, and that's just trying to be reflective of how some people speak to each other, especially brutalized people and people who don't mind brutalizing each other. Um, Large organizations often take on the character of the people at the top, and it, it permeates all the way through the organizations. And this is a horrible world. As I said, somewhere in this season, the poison does drip down through this organization and into the world.
1: I really regret to say that we are out of time. It has been such a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much for talking about Succession and thank you for creating it. It's given me and so many other people so much pleasure.
4: Thank you, Terry. It's lovely to speak to you. Great questions. I feel like I managed to say things that I knew I thought but had never really expressed before. So it's um, thanks for the um, opportunity to chat to you.
1: Jesse Armstrong is the creator, showrunner and head writer of HBO's Succession. If you're a Succession fan and just can't get enough of it, the podcast version of our interview is longer. For some people, like our book critic Maureen Carrigan, summer and suspense go together, like Arsenic and Old Lace. Here's her review of two new suspense novels with a twist. To
5: kick off this summer reading season... I'm recommending two suspense novels that gleefully overturn the age-old woman-in-trouble plot. Megan Abbott is a superstar of the suspense genre who's generated a host of bestsellers like The Turnout and Dare Me, which was made into a series for Netflix. But what Abbott's fans may not know is that she holds a Ph.D. in literature and wrote a dissertation on the figure of the macho tough guy in the mysteries of writers like Dashiell Hammett, James M. Cain, and Chester Himes. In other words, Abbott is one smart dame when it comes to sussing out the sexism inherent in those mysteries that so many of us love. Her latest novel is called Beware the Woman, and it's inspired not so much by hard-boiled mysteries, but by another hallowed suspense genre, the gothic, which almost always features a woman running in terror through the halls of a maze-like mansion. As this novel's title suggests, maybe it's the men here who should start running. At the outset of Beware the Woman, our narrator, a 30-something pregnant woman named JC, is driving with her new husband, Jed, deep into the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. They're going to visit Jed's widowed father, a retired physician named Dr. Ash, whom j c has only met once, fleetingly. In fact, Jacy married Jed only a few months after they first met, but she's so in love she feels she's known him forever. Honey, we all marry strangers, J.C.'s mom wearily told her on the day of the wedding. In this case, mother really does know best. The family cottage, as Jed had called it, turns out to be much grander, like a hunting lodge in an old movie. And inside, in addition to Dr. Ash, the lodge is occupied by a caretaker, the chilly Mrs. Brandt, who halfway into the novel tersely mutters to J.C., maybe you should go home. Too late, By then, JC is having problems with her pregnancy, and the bed rest Dr. Ash and his physician friend have prescribed is beginning to feel like house arrest. If you detected strains of Daphne du Maurier's gothic masterpiece Rebecca in that plot summary, you'd be half right. Beware the woman is Rebecca wedded to Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale. Along with the feverish psychological twists and turns that Abbott's novels are celebrated for, Beware the Woman explores the timely topic of women's autonomy over their own bodies, especially during pregnancy. Katie Williams also riffs on some hallowed traditions in her ingenious debut suspense novel called My Murder. I'm thinking here of noir films like Sunset Boulevard and DOA, whose voiceovers are narrated by dead men talking. In the very first sentence of William's novel, a young wife and mother named Lou tells us, I was supposed to be getting dressed for the party, the first since my murder. It's hard to move on from that arresting first sentence, But eventually, we readers learn that Lou, along with some other women identified as victims of the same serial killer, have been brought back to life by a government-funded replication commission that grew them from the cells of their murdered originals. Williams is adept at swirling sci-fi and domestic suspense plot lines into this unpredictable tale. For instance, one night, Lou's husband, Silas, arrives home to tell her one of his workmates has alerted him to a new virtual reality game. "'It's a game of you,' Silas said woodenly. "'Of your murder, Lou,' he put his hands to his face. "'I'm so sorry. Someone made a game out of your murder.'" Indeed, the game allows players to step into the role of Lou or any one of the other murdered women and navigate the landscape of city streets and parks where their bodies were found while trying to evade the serial killer. The point of the game, Lou quickly understands, is to instill fear in women a fear she has to combat when she begins investigating inconsistencies in her own murder case. Instilling fear in women is also the consequence, intended or not, of so much violent content in popular culture, including suspense fiction, both Abbott and Williams push back against the misogyny of the genre and do some cloning and regenerating of their own in these two eerie and inventive
1: suspense novels. Maureen Carrigan is a professor of literature at Georgetown University. She reviewed Beware the Woman by Megan Abbott and My Murder by Katie Williams. Coming up, we'll hear from actor Elliot Page... He's known for his roles in many films, including Juno and X-Men, his new memoir is an account of coming out as transgender and struggling to find his identity in Hollywood. This is Fresh Air Weekend. By the time your evening commute rolls around, or maybe your afternoon stroll, you've already got the
2: headlines. So let your mind wander away from the front page with Here and Now Anytime, a podcast from NPR and WBUR. We'll keep you up to speed on the stories that matter and introduce you to people living the news, not just commenting on it. It's here and now, anytime. Big news
0: stories don't always break on your schedule. But with the NPR app, news, culture and podcasts are ready when you want them in your pocket. Download the NPR app today.
1: Fresh Air's co-host Tanya Mosley has our next interview. Here's Tanya. Writing a
0: book never felt quite right for Academy Award-nominated actor and producer Elliot Page, although he'd been asked to write one on more than one occasion. The problem was, he says, is that he could never sit still long enough to complete the task, his brain consumed by his discomfort in his own skin. But now that he has come into his full self as a transgender man, Page has completed what he felt was impossible— writing a memoir titled Page Boy about the joys and perils of fame, including pressures from Hollywood to conform into the gender binary. His memoir is full of intimate stories from secret love affairs to battling body image and his relationship struggles with family. Page is known for his roles in movies like Juno, Inception and X-Men. In 2020, he came out as a trans man. And soon after, his character in the third season of the Netflix series The Umbrella Academy also transitioned. In addition to being an actor, Page is a documentary filmmaker. In 2019, he directed There's Something in the Water, a film that explores the disproportionate effects of environmental damage on Black, Canadian, and First Nations communities in Nova Scotia. Page was born in Halifax and was a child actor in Canada before his breakout role in the 2007 film Juno, in which he earned an Academy Award nomination. He has also been nominated for several awards, including a Primetime Emmy and two BAFTA awards. In 2021, he became the first openly trans man to appear on the cover of Time magazine. Elliot Page's new memoir, Page Boy, is out this week. Elliot, welcome to Fresh Air.
6: Thank you so much. Hello.
0: You know, every time I sit down to read a memoir, I think about something that writer Casey Gerald has said, that he does not recommend writing one unless your life depends on it. Basically, that the need to share his truth was just that urgent and that dire. I'm wondering with you, did writing this book feel like it was an imperative to you? And if so, why? Well, I think there's
6: a a couple components here. I think In many ways, there was some organic surge of words that did need to come out. Like, it felt um, like something clicked, and I sat down, and I started writing. And, like, for example, that first chapter in the book, Paula, that is the first thing I sat down and, and wrote, and it did just come out, like, just sort of stream of consciousness, and then I kind of couldn't stop. And I think... In, in many ways, the feeling was so exhilarating um, because, like I, I say in the opening of the book, it, it really, anything like this felt impossible before and, quite frankly, was. Like, I was just so uncomfortable that literally the thought of sitting and being able to create for hours was just not imaginable. And also in this specific time and climate, just so rife with attacks against you know trans people and... Um, having this strange life that's ended up with this platform I, I have, it It sort of felt like these two things collided in many ways, and, and the time felt right. That timing that you're
0: talking about, this overemphasis on focus on trans people as an issue, as a problem in our society, it also converged with this time period of 2020, when we were all cloistered in our homes, it was such a dark period. What was it about that time period? I know many folks say that even despite the darkness, having that time to hear one's own voice allowed them to slow down enough. Was that also the case for you, you being able to actually hear yourself?
6: Yes, um, absolutely. Uh, in many ways, I think in not having a part to go play you know uh a female character um, uh, you know, having to be in that space and and wear that clothing and um and actually, I don't actually talk about this in the book, but I was attached to a film that was gonna require sort of you know extra amount of specific you know uh you know f- f- femininity feminine clothes or and I was in like absolute distress, like about like having to do this role, like to such an extreme degree and noticing just how profoundly it was, it was affecting me and how I couldn't wrap my head around doing it. And then that sort of, you know, everything was put on hold because of everything we experienced um, during that time in the beginning of the pandemic. And, and then I did, yes, have the space to sit with myself and reflect, which became very difficult in some moments, but ultimately led me to um, be able to get quiet enough to finally allow myself to acknowledge and express my truth. That distress that you felt about that
0: role that you were going to take on before um, everything was shut down during the pandemic, that was a feeling that you had felt for quite some time. Really, almost with every role that you took, you had to reconcile with yourself. And um, have a conversation with yourself, but also have a conversation with those who were on the set about what you would and wouldn't wear or do or portray. Um, it sounds like it took an overwhelming amount of energy
6: to to push in that way. It did. And I also understand why people were probably confused and, 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 and baffled by it. You know, uh, you're an actor. Why can't you, <laughs> you know? pardon the pun, but transform and, you know, um, and perform. And I was baffled myself. I did and didn't understand it, you know, um, why I was just so uncomfortable. And in particular, because I would play roles where the clothes probably wouldn't even seem that, you know, femme or what have you. But I was still just so uncomfortable like even a warm-up coat you know cut for like you know um would make me crawl on my skin and it kind of just got worse and worse and worse um but my ability to start saying what I could and couldn't handle that strength came up like when I did sign on to Umbrella Academy and you know so lucky to work with Steve Blackman the showrunner one of the first things I said was I'd love to do this but Like, I have to be in control of what I'm going to wear, you know, for example, because I couldn't have imagined doing something for years, like having to wake up and go to work and um, dress a certain way.
0: You just said something really important when you were saying that you couldn't even really figure out why you were so uncomfortable. Your book really lays out for us clearly, though, your involvement of understanding of yourself. Actually, the steps that took you to your ultimate understanding of you as a transgender person. Can I have you read an excerpt of the book to set the scene of this excerpt that we're going to read? You are describing those early years of your life growing up in Nova Scotia and the early feelings you experienced about your identity. Can I have you start with the word 11? 11 was the age.
6: 11 was the age I sensed a shift from boy to girl without my consent. As an adult, I would say, I just want to be a 10-year-old boy whenever dysphoria belted out its annoying song, a pop hit that you know the words to and don't know why. It's hard to explain gender dysphoria to people who don't experience it. It's an awful voice in the back of your head. You assume everyone else hears it, but they don't. 11 was when I last felt present in my flesh, not suspended above, Transient and frantic to return. It was a departure of sorts, a path to a false identity and a shell of a disguise. Entering witness protection, he'd seen too much.
0: I'd never heard anyone describe an experience as a voice in your head that just won't stop, an annoying pop hit that you know the words to, but you don't know why. Gender dysphoria is this sense of unease a person feels because of a mismatch between their biological sex and their gender identity. And what were those messages that annoying pop song in your head was telling you as you moved through the world, um, beginning at 11? Kind of this thing that you thought everyone else heard, but only
6: you could hear. Yeah, it's, um, how do you describe it? <laughs> it's like a constant um noise, a constant feeling that something wrong, like a, a sensation in a voice that's like telling you to flee.
0: Your acting career began at nine years old. There was a casting call at your school for an after-school special, um, on Canadian TV called Pit Pony. Had you conceived of being anything else before then? Did you have any other dreams for yourself as a kid?
6: Nothing actually very concrete now that I think back. Um, The thought of being an actor wasn't something that was remotely on my mind or what felt like a part of reality that felt like a very distant world, you know, (laughs) Um, I really loved acting. I was in the drama club at school and very invested in that. My mom recalls me really young wanting to go see plays that I wouldn't have understood, but was like very adamant about going to see them, you know. So there was clearly something, something about it that really drew me in. Um, and then it kind of just happened.
0: It's really interesting, you going back to thinking, uh, it was always there, your understanding of yourself. There was just a block and a barrier. You actually say in the book that it was during the making of Pit Pony that you intensely felt your gender dysphoria. You describe that that discomfort of having to wear tights and dresses and barrettes in your hair. Do you remember voicing it to the adults at the time, too?
6: Yeah, and I think... uh, was such an interesting time because I sort of uh, pushed it enough, like how I wanted to look, uh, to the degree that my mom did finally kind of go, you know, okay. <laughs> so by like 9, 10, um, I really was, you know, in some periods existing really how I wanted to. Um, I think I say in the book it was just the sort of like recital or Christmas party or. Uh, you know, these various occasions where I'd be sort of forced into a dress or something, but, um, the age of finally sort of looking how, I shouldn't say finally, obviously it's a, you know, young age, uh, at nine, ten to becoming an actor and, and playing these, um, female characters that I felt that significant shift, um, and going to work every day and, you know, enjoying it. What an incredible opportunity. It's like I loved it in so many ways. And then there was this aspect that was not enjoyable. And again, that feeling of just utter confusion. I would just look at my, you know, co stars who were boys my age and just, you know, sorry to repeat myself, but I just baffled. I just I, I couldn't understand it.
0: Because they were allowed to be who they are. They were just—they allowed to be,
6: be who they were, and a part of me knew like, it wasn't just about clothes.
0: There was this media frenzy around your sexuality after Juno came out in 2007. You play a pregnant teenager, and ironically, you write that the role made you feel a sense of autonomy. What was it about playing Juno that made you feel that way?
6: Well, I think... You know, firstly, when I like, I remember when I first read the script. I was in my bedroom in Halifax, and I just couldn't put it down. And the just the first few pages, I was like, "Oh my goodness, this is something!" You know, this character was just so fresh—the way she spoke, her humor, uh, her kind of agency in many ways. Um, and you know, when I was fortunate enough to get. Cast in that movie, um, and in pre-production, and in wardrobe fittings, um, I you know literally went to use clothing stores with producer and like pulling out you know how I thought she should look and dress and all these things, and felt like it was a real collaborative process in you know bringing that character to life and and off the page, and at the time, um, you know it did feel like something relatively new, something that a certain representation that wasn't, you know, frequently available necessarily. And, and I think that aspect of the character did seem to, to connect to people, especially a lot of young women.
0: I just want to talk a little bit about the depictions of trans and queer people in Hollywood, because that's also part of it. If you can't actually see yourself as a working actor, if you were truly yourself, then what what will you do? And so, like, first, the, the is he or isn't he around sexuality seems to be oppressive and oppressively pervasive, almost like queer actors have to sign a pact of conforming to the binary in order to be successful. Were you aware of the intensity of scrutiny over sexuality before Juno?
6: Um, I, yeah, I experienced it. A bit like when I uh, made the film the an X-Men movie when I was 18 and it premiered at Cannes I'm not sure why and I remember just being in this like very tight like gold dress you know and my publicist at the time like the the face just brightening up and you know, people just going on and on about how you, like, look, like, you'd accomplished this feat, you know, like, like, given a reward (laughs) for, like, you know, dining this, you know, what felt like a costume for me, essentially. But it wasn't until Juno where that was just taken to a whole new level and, you know, intensely pressured to dress a certain way and act a certain way and, not be seen with my girlfriend, you know, I didn't go to the Oscars with my, who I was in love with at the time, you know, she didn't come.
0: That had to be painful. Did you celebrate even the the nomination?
6: I'm going to be honest, not too much. And it feels like such a complicated thing to talk about because you realize, like, who wants to hear an actor who got nominated for an Oscar be like, oh, that was a difficult time. Like, I get it. Like, I do understand. Or like, oh, boo-hoo, you had to put on the dress. Like, I don't not get that. Um, But I wasn't happy. I was not having a good time. I just wanted that period to be over. And, you know, it didn't mean it wasn't cool. Obviously, it drastically impacts your career and helps your career. But I was not doing so well, mental health-wise. It was not celebratory.
0: Elliot... Page, it's been a pleasure to talk with you and thank you for your book. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me.
1: Elliot Page's new memoir is called Page Boy. He spoke with our co-host, Tanya Mosley. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Salat, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shorrock, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Henry Reba Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yacundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. I'm Terry Gross.
3: This message comes from NPR sponsor
0: NetSuite by Oracle. You look around your business and see inefficiency everywhere, so you should know these numbers. 37,000, the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite just turned 25. That's 25 years of helping businesses streamline their finances and reduce costs. 1, because your unique business deserves a customized solution. And that's NetSuite. Learn more at
2: netsuite.com story. Hi, I'm Jen White from 1A. I host a news show for those who need to know what's happening and why it matters. But we get it. The news can weigh you down. It's why we also make time for stories, guests, and surprises that'll lift you up. Listen to the 1A podcast from WAMU and NPR.